I'm David Pluck. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Today, we're going to be talking to the legendary investigative reporter Carl Bernstein of Watergate fame. He recently made headlines when he named 21 Republican senators who had expressed to him extreme contempt for President Trump and his actions post-election. All behind closed doors, of course. In Carl's own words, their craven public silence helped enable Trump. But Steve, before we talk to Carl, and I know we're both eager to do that, let's go into this week's madness. 106 Republican House members and 17 Republican state attorneys general have signed on to a legal brief in support of a lawsuit brought by the Texas Attorney General. But the intent of this is to overturn the results of the 2020 election. David, it is an unbelievable moment and a fitting end to this rancid Trump presidency, but opens up and frames perfectly the battle we'll have for the next generation. And that battle, as difficult as it is for me to say it, is a battle between democracy and autocracy that will be playing out on American soil. It's just beyond my comprehension to say that again. A battle between democracy and autocracy, not on a foreign land, but on American soil. Steve, if we were in a different scenario where, let's say, Biden had won Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin by the you know, relatively narrow margins, so not 538 votes, 10,000 votes, 12,000 votes, I'm not so sure that Trump wouldn't be successful in holding on. Maybe. Probably not, but not impossible to see. And I have deep contempt for so many of these House members and senators who've allowed for all this to happen. But we found out the answer to the question, who would cross the Rubicon? Who would try to upend an election to maintain Trump in power with undemocratic means? Right? Who would, who would try to overturn the will of the American people? And so now we know, right? 90 Republicans in the House said no, they're not going to do that. And 106 of them said yes. The question with those 90 House Republicans, how many of them just can't get past the absurdity of it versus the principle of it? And I don't know, maybe 70 of those 90 are like, I'd love to do it, but just the plan is bad and Rudy's crazy, right? (laughs) Or, right, you know, maybe it's all 90, like, or a matter of principle. But at any rate, so I have a surprise announcement for you that I thought I would share on our podcast, something that I've decided to do, and I'll say it here first. So I spent 29 years as a Republican. I've spent two and a half as an independent. And later this afternoon, I will register as a member of the Democratic Party. Wow. And I'm doing that. What a journey. Because in America today, it's only the Democratic Party, which is the oldest political party in the world, that stands for the ideas and ideals of American liberty. It's a broad, big tent party. I understand ideologically where I come from isn't anywhere close to being, you know, the mean opinion of the party on some issues. But I think for me in this hour, for the balance of my life and my participation in politics, I'm not independent in this fight anymore. And I'm not prepared to make any accommodation ever with any of the elements that came to life and were encouraged by a president. It's not as if they didn't exist before, but now they're the mainstream part of a coalition inside the Republican Party. And that wasn't so when I was there. These militia groups, 
the nationalist groups, the white nationalist groups. And I do think it's zero sum. I think we win. And by we, I mean America, or they win. And the place where that fight will take place from is in the Democratic Party. And so I'm proud later today that I will become a member of it. Well, we're proud to have you. Welcome, brother. I mean, for as long as you'd like, but nothing would make me happier than six, eight years from now, you know, maybe sooner. You say I can contemplate maybe going back home because the war will have been won. But I think that's right. Are you on the side of the Constitution and democracy and the principle of self-governance? Are you not? Simple question. And the truth is these 106 House members, these 17 Republican attorneys general, they need to be held accountable. Oh, yes, they do. Well, Steve, you and I could keep talking about this all day, and I think we were. We're just going to bring in our guest, Carl Bernstein, to join our discussion. Carl doesn't need any introduction, but I'll remind everybody, he's one of the most legendary investigative reporters of all time. He and his friend and, and partner, Bob Woodward, broke the Watergate story, Richard Nixon's corruption scandal that ended up in his resignation for the Washington Post. He got a start in journalism working as a copy boy for the Washington Evening Star, and he became a reporter at the uh, young age of 19. He's the author of five best-selling books. I read them all. I'm sure Steve has as well. And he's really spent his life shining a light on how power is used and abused in Washington. I can't think of anyone better to talk to about the unprecedented power grabs we've seen this week, the corruption we're witnessing right now, how that fits in historical context, and what it means going forward. So, Carl, welcome to Battleground. Good to be with you. You obviously were a narrator for most of the country and world a period of corruption in American history. You've studied the entire history. I guess my question is, can we come back from this? Because I'm not sure anymore if you have most of one political party suggesting that elections don't matter when they don't like the outcome. Look, we are in the midst of an assault on democracy, such as we have never seen, certainly in my lifetime. We had Joe McCarthy. We had the Un-American Committee. We had the witch hunts. Those were people in Congress. Never have we had a president of the United States who has embraced through his rhetoric, through his actions, and through building and bringing to him a cult, really, a personality cult and a huge constituency that now is the perhaps most cohesive force in our politics. And as those politics are defined as part of the larger culture as well. So I start from that. And so it brings me to a point of non-optimism, to put it mildly, because a president and a constituency and a large part of our culture, including much of the social media of our culture, has gone to places that we could not have imagined. Certainly, I could never have imagined. Maybe Philip Roth did a little bit in a couple of his books. Maybe Sinclair Lewis did. Can't happen here. But I think an awful lot of it is happening. The Constitution did not anticipate a Donald Trump or a cultural upheaval such as we have seen. So you got to raise the question, is the system working? The system worked in Watergate. The institutions worked in Watergate. The system is not working now. If you go back to the Federalist debate and you look at, at why we had all these protections built into the system to protect the minority from a tyranny, we now have a tyranny of the minority. And we're the oldest 
democracy in the world, but the instruments, including our Constitution, may not be up and probably are not up to what we need right now. So I start, I'm going to throw that back as a framework at right, you guys. Right. I think I disagree with you on one thing you said, which is I think the founders absolutely anticipated a president one day like Trump. What I think they couldn't anticipate is the surrender of inherent power by a co-equal branch of government to another co-equal branch of government. I think that's the design flaw in the system. I think it was unimaginable to them that you would have that branch of government become supine in the face of the orange leader from Queens, right? It's an extraordinary moment. You're, you're 100% right. I'm not I, on, on that particular part of it. I agree with you. You've written about the concept of minority rule, which we're living under and have been for some time. I would like to ask you, Carl, though, because you and Bob Woodward chronicled the Watergate period. And of course, when you think about both the Ellsberg break in, you know, that was driven by the criticism that Nixon feared could hurt him in his reelection. The break in at the DNC headquarters was, of course, driven by an election. Nixon and his team wanted to avail themselves of any advantage. And obviously the cover up, you know, that you guys chronicled was even worse than the original crime there. That's not true. That's, that's a myth. Is that a myth? The cover up was not worse than the crimes. No. Well, it was a bad crime. Watergate was a criminal conspiracy to undermine the electoral system of this country, just as we're seeing with, with Trump, but differently. I mean, what that's and that's only part of it. It was to undermine the anti-war movement through illegal break-ins. It was to use Nixon's political opposition and ruin them through obtaining their IRS returns. It was pervasive criminality. But when you think about the election, okay, Nixon was focused on winning the election. Okay. Yes. There was no suggestion. And he was focused on winning the election by not running against Edmund Muskie. Right. He wanted to run against the weakest candidate, who was George McGovern. And what he did is, through a vast campaign of political espionage and sabotage, engineered the destruction through dirty tricks of the Muskie campaign and the selection of George McGovern as the inevitable Democratic nominee. Rat fucking, I think, was the term that was originated yes. at that time. So I don't mean to minimize any of that. And, you know, when, when you think about the break-ins and, and what they did, you know, to try and undermine the anti-war movement, John Ehrlichman admits that the war on drugs was all about trying to limit the power of the black community. But there was no suggestion that I've seen, and I've tried to read everything that, you know, you've written, Bob's written, Ehrlichman, Dean, Haldeman, all of that, that basically if that election had been close and it wasn't that they would seek to do what Trump's doing right now. So when you think about what Trump and his allies are doing right now, this race was not close. And they are saying, who cares? It is irrelevant, the election results. We want to keep Trump in power. I just think when we think about as terrible a period as Watergate was, as pervasive the criminal enterprise as it was, to me, from a threat standpoint, this is far and away more pronounced. But I'd love, you know, no one knows better than you how to compare these two eras. First of all, Donald Trump and all he represents, but him himself, has been the greatest threat by any individual, by any president, by a long shot, to the democratic founding principles of this country and who we are as a people. You can't even put 
the Nixon presidency in the same box in terms of damage. First of all, the system worked in Watergate, partly because Republicans were the ones who said, we cannot have a criminal president. And the Supreme Court said that Nixon had to turn over his tapes. Nixon expected that the uh, chief justice who he had appointed would save him from turning over his tapes. Instead, the chief justice joined with the other justices in saying we have to have a unanimous decision by this court that no one in this country, including the president of the United States, is above the law. Barry Goldwater, the 1964 nominee of his party and the Republican leadership, marched to the White House. They voted, first of all, the Republicans cast the key votes that made it a bipartisan impeachment of Richard Nixon, casting in the House Judiciary Committee those votes, courageous Republicans of whom we have seen almost none in the Trump presidency. And that, that's a huge difference between what occurred in, in Watergate. But ultimately, the system worked. And those Republicans, led by Barry Goldwater, went down and said, you have to go, Mr. President, because we are not going to support you in a Senate trial. We are going to vote to convict you. And day after he heard that, Nixon decided, all right, he's not going to fight and he's going to resign. Donald Trump, he is our first and only subversive president who has subverted at every turn the national interest of the United States to his own interests, to his own private hates, to his own private fortune and notion that he's entitled to a bigger fortune by virtue of being the president of the United States. This is a grifter presidency with the grifter in chief and his family who serves the interest, whether wittingly, half-wittingly, or unwittingly, of our enemy, of our principal enemy, Russia, Putin. That's whose interests have been served in this presidency. It is not an accident that almost all of his principal national security advisors and chiefs of staff have concluded that this president himself is a danger to the national security. We never had a president before whose aides said, oh, the president is, a, is the primary danger to the national security of the United States? What the hell have we been through here? This is astonishing. And there is a consensus among the people who work in the national security. You know, Mad Dog Bannis over there at the Pentagon, what did he have spoken up earlier? They concluded, this man is a danger to the national security of the United States. And pandemic, the greatest killer scourge in our modern history, maybe in our history. This president knew. What did the president know and when did he know it? Listen to those tapes that my colleague Bob Woodward recorded with Donald Trump when he says, well, I, I don't want to panic the American people. Most lethal lie in American history, bar none. Have we ever had a president in our history who really committed homicidal negligence nope. against hundreds of thousands of people in our country? I mean, I'm not used to getting so exercised, but let's look at what the hell this has been about. It's the most lethal lie in American history. Yet, right, when you look at it all, even that lie, which will be responsible in the end for the deaths of more people than were killed in combat in World War II unnecessarily, when you look at that lie, when you look at the caged children, when you look at the totality of everything that he's done, all of it, and I don't say this lightly, it pales in comparison to his final and most atrocious 
Act, the poisoning of faith and belief in American democracy, and the green shoots in the spring of an American authoritarian movement. You're definitely right, Steve. The lasting effects of what he's doing right now is really incalculable. We'll be dealing with it for decades. If we're lucky, years, but probably decades. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be back soon to talk more with Carl Bernstein. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking to investigative reporter and author Carl Bernstein. I'd like to ask you a question, Carl. During Watergate and the investigations, the end of Nixon presidency, of course, you had conservative columnists and liberal columnists. You had, you know, talk radio hosts. But for the most part, the mainstream media, you know, the networks and and papers like The Post and The Times and local outlets played the role that we were accustomed to, didn't really call balls and strikes, just reported. And, you know, I get angry when I think about these Republican attorneys general. Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz knows better. I mean, they're listen. There's the Jim Jordan. I don't know that Ted Cruz knows better about anything. Maybe he doesn't. I I mean, where (laughs) is a set of humane principles? Yeah. Consistently that we have heard from Ted Cruz, whose father was accused of horrific things from Probably Trump. But, but here's my question, though. So 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 I do think there's some of them that believe Trump was robbed, I, I think. But I think I really believe that's a minority. The rest of them inexcusably are going along with this because they're afraid of Trump. But I think what's driving the Republican Party today, Carl, which we didn't have back in the 70s or even the 80s, is the Fox primetime hosts, you know, Carlson, Ingram and Hannity. You've got Newsmax, OAN, the Epoch Times, and obviously all of that turbocharged on social media. So the question is, is who's in charge of the circus? I think most of these elected officials aren't ever going to get crosswise with those entertainment figures, because they're not news figures, who are calling all the shots in the Republican Party. And so when I, you know, you said, you know, you're kind of in a not a great positive mindset. That's what gives me concern. Is there any chance that in 21, 22, 23, 24, those entities are going to do anything but go down conspiracy land, try and divide? They're going to continue to say Biden wasn't elected. So I just would love to have you reflect on kind of where we are today and compare that to, you know, I think those dynamics were not the same back in the, you know, Watergate era. I think we need to talk about the larger country and culture here that is so subject to misinformation and disinformation that transcends just the, quote, political, that is about all kinds of grievance, injury, anger. That is a huge cultural force, not purely political. You know, we can get to the story that I did about the 21 Republican senators and the numbers actually much greater than that, who really despise and disdain Donald Trump and have been so craven that they, except for a couple of them, they won't say a peep. And they have enabled, and McConnell obviously has enabled Trump's most egregious excesses. But the misinformation, disinformation, and susceptibility to that or a lot of that disinformation, misinformation, is gobbled up by people with grievance, with injury, with anger, with hate, all kinds of stuff mixed up in there. We've never had a synthesized huge minority in our country that has formed with those 
factors that I know of. I think that there's a um, couple of things to point out is that you know, 40% of the country doesn't have $400 cash available. That's right. And that is destabilizing for democracy. And by the way, I'm a capitalist. I know that David is. And me too. And here's the thing. We have too much power accumulated and too much money accumulated in too few places. That's not capitalism. That's serfdom. And I remember reading a, a few years back, and Amity Schles, she wrote a book that was fascinating on the New Deal. And the premise of the book was, in essence, is that none of these policies really worked economically. They didn't bring about the recovery. And war brought about the recovery. Right. And the <laughs> answer is, if you look back objectively at that era, right, and FDR's political genius, and you assess the success of the New Deal, the point isn't whether those policies worked economically when you gauge their success. Those policies saved democracy, perhaps, and saved capitalism, because what those policies did is restore or maintain faith and belief in the legitimacy of the system in a moment in time where nationalism, fascism, authoritarianism, Nazism, imperialism were rising all over the rest of the world. Capitalism was saved by Franklin Roosevelt in his first days in office because there was great pressure to nationalize the banks. And so Roosevelt did not nationalize the banks, declared a bank holiday, I think, for a couple of days, if I'm right about that. And that's a moment in which capitalism really was saved. And it's, it is a moment. And um, you look at where we are now, and it's interesting that the word African-American has not come into this conversation yet. In fact, our system was built on slavery, and our country was built on slavery to a certain or a large extent. And it is the, the greatest fissure that runs through our history to this day, and we're up against it every moment of our existence in this country and have been. And the ability for lying and lie culture to move through our society is the greatest that it's ever been. And the means to disseminate lie and to raise lie to a pinnacle of satisfaction for all kinds of grievance, anger, hate, fear. And it can make you a billionaire. Damn right. And we're in the middle of that. You know, I wrote a cover story for the New Republican in, in 1992 called The Triumph of Idiot Culture. And it was about Murdoch culture. Didn't say it per se, but it was really about the pernicious influence at the time of Murdoch's New York Post and the sensibility that he brought to the New York Post from his press in Australia and the United Kingdom, which has no interest in truth whatsoever. Not a damn thing. That piece, The Triumph of Idiot Culture, was about manufactured controversy as the staple of a kind of journalism and information system 
gossip and sensationalism. And interestingly enough, the lead of that piece was, Marla, was it really the best sex you ever had? Asked Diane Sawyer of Marla Maples about Donald Trump and her marriage. And Diane was a great reporter and journalist. And yet that story in 1992, through the tabloids and through Murdoch, and what I'm getting at is that what is news is perhaps the most important thing that we do. That's the essential element that's starting place for the best obtainable version of the truth. Not an accident that Ailes came out of the Nixon White House either, but we now have an information matrix system or, or whatever in which there is no consensus about truth. If you live in an age where it's no longer possible to distinguish between the lie and the truth, democracy is in the gravest danger because you cannot have accountability without truth. And without accountability, you don't have any democracy. And it's just as simple as that. It's definitely one of the biggest issues facing us, maybe the single largest issue that we'll face, but one, sadly, that seems to have no clear, imminent solutions. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be back soon to wrap up our conversation. Welcome back to Battleground. Carl, last question for you. If you think about the period of the early to mid-70s, we had Vietnam. We had assassinations in the 60s, racial unrest, massive economic problems. We have a president who's forced to resign for ethics breaches. Now, what's clear is we didn't perfect our union after that. And that was a really challenging period for the country. And my recollection as I read books about it and articles about it is there was a lot of people unsure the country would recover from that. And, you know, because of good leadership and good citizenship and good ideas, we were able to slowly dig out of that hole. Again, I want to make clear, we certainly didn't solve all of our challenges. And so I think this is a more profound threat than that was. We now have a fundamental threat to our democracy. And I would bet on democracy winning, but do I think that's a 90-10 bet? I don't think it is. I never thought I'd say that. But I just, you know, leave us with a little optimism, Carl. <laughs> and, you know, we just saw in 2018 and 2020, people under 25 voting at big numbers. We have to have that continue to have any chance of saving this democracy in this country. But leave us with a little optimism, if you could. You know, one of the things that happened in Watergate also was luck. And, and we might need some luck in addition to determination. <laughs> right. And the luck that occurred in the Nixon presidency was his tapes. The fact that he taped himself. He would not have been impeached were those tapes not there, even after everything we knew from the Watergate hearings from the testimony. So there was great element of luck in there as well. And we might need some luck going forward, but we've been a lucky country and providential. I think we got a long-term project that has to be generational. We need to face the fact that we have never had a president like Donald Trump, who, especially in these last days and months, he's attempted a coup and he has made it his absolute priority to undermine the most basic bedrock of our process, constitution, belief system, all the rest. And that is free, fair election. He has poisoned that well, continues to poison. And, you know, through our history, we have had courageous people who 
stood up. And it's going to require some of that. It is going to require conservative Republicans to join with Democrats. But there has got to be some way of reaching some of Trump's coalition through truth. We've also got to come up with a mechanism of defeating the lie culture, or at least being stronger than the lie culture with the truth. I don't know how you do that, but that has got to be an essential element of what happens here. I don't know the answer, but you talk about, you know, that is a real challenge. Because right now we have a a mechanism, a system, a systemic problem of lies just going through our culture. So, you know, I think the optimism would be the character, even the mythic character, that there's something to the myth (laughs) about the character of the American people. Yeah, we got to bet on that. Yeah. I think that's the bottom line. It's somehow through being tough, fighting hard, elevating truth, and at the same time, going back to that character that so much transcends the mere political, in quotes. It's not about R's and D's. There's something greater going on that transcends mere politics. We've got to fight this at that level. And if we're going to find optimism, it has got to be in that area. And this is something Biden might be able to really do something through his character, to rise above the merely political, to bring some of his empathy and ethos. Also, I I hate to mention it, but there's the challenge of what he's facing with what's going on with Hunter Biden, which is going to be part of this terrible fight that you're talking about. Well, to those of you who are feeling a little pessimistic, I offer you encouragement with these words of John McCain, quoting Chairman Mao that he loved, which is to remember it's always darkest before it's completely black. (laughs) (laughs) Some gallows humor to take us home. Well, listen, Carl, you're one of my... uh, personal heroes. Yeah, same here. Great to get to talk to you. It's so sweet. What you and Bob Woodward have done for the country, not just during the Watergate period, but in the decades since, has been such a huge contribution to our democracy, to our understanding of it, to who we are. I also encourage every young person to both read the book that you wrote with Bob Woodward, All the President's Men, and one of the few movies that's almost as good as the book with Dustin Hoffman playing you and Robert Redford, because the heroism of what you did is so stirring. And I think as we think about all the challenges, one of the lies is that the press is the enemy of the people. And throughout our history, it has been the free press that has been such a bedrock of the strength of this country. So to me, it captures better than any book and any movie can the power of that idea. Thank you. It's really been wonderful to be with you guys. Thanks, Carl. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jess Williams did research for this episode. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. And Christian Castro-Lassell is our executive producer. <laughs>